0: Welcome to another episode of The Carpenter Shop, a limited edition podcast presented by War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher.
1: And I'm Jacob Graves. Once a month, we take a deep dive into director John Carpenter's colossal canon.
0: Sometimes we discuss a film we already know and love.
1: And other times we discover a gem for the very first time. Hey Jake, what is on the docket today? Well Chris, we're here to discuss John Carpenter and chew bubblegum. And we're all out of bubblegum. So I guess we'll just have to review Carpenter's final film of the 80s, They Live.
0: Plus... I've got a pick for the perfect beer to pair with They Live, and we've both got something you should definitely check out in really rad recommendations. But first.
1: Hey Jake. Hey Chris. Long time no see. Yeah, it feels like it's been a while.
0: Yeah. So for those who may have been wondering uh, why this episode is a little late, we decided to rerun Prince of Darkness for the last Carpenter Shop episode because it had been a while since, uh, you know, that was was our very first official episode. Um, And it fits chronologically in here between Big Trouble and Little China and They Live. And something happened, Jake. What was that? I think you're a married man now.
1: Oh, I am. I, I didn't want to say that. I thought we were keeping it under wraps. So all the all the lady fans who. Am I not the cute one in the in this boy band? I'm confused. <laughs> I, I thought I was the available cute one, but uh, yeah, fine. I'm married.
0: Yeah. So congratulations.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: But also, since we've kind of come full circle back to Prince of Darkness, uh, I thought in lieu of having uh John Carpenter Newswire which I mean there's a bunch of stuff that we haven't covered since the last one we did but I I figured maybe we could actually talk a little bit just briefly about uh Prince of Darkness because we both revisited it to kind of put it more in context with where it where it falls into Carpenter's canon
1: watching it this time it it felt much more um like a reaction to big trouble not being the success that it honestly should have been mm-hmm. like it, it is definitely more context. But the thing that struck me the most was how many familiar faces show up.
0: I mean, especially coming straight off of big trouble. You've got Dennis Don, you've got Victor Wong. Um, but then also, you know, I, I was aware the first time that we watched it of, of that sort of reaction to him going smaller. Um, but it's I don't know. it was it was interesting this time for me because I feel like I'm still sort of in the same place where I was uh, with our initial discussion. but uh, it opened up a little more for me. You were pretty of of the three of us, it was you myself and Hunter, uh, Kate's, the wayward warrior, on on that review. You were the highest on it. I think I think you made it a carpenter classic. I, didn't, I don't
1: think I made it a Carpenter Classic, but I did make it a, a, a Just for Johnny's Mommy either. It was either a high deep dive or a low Carpenter Classic. I loved it. I, I thought it was great. And and, and on, on revisiting it, it had a lot of the things that I liked the first time. The the main thing I think I would do is I would bump that, that uh, score up. I thought the score was really exactly what I wanted and kind of a return to that horror score for John Carpenter compared to... To some of the stuff we had seen uh, in the in the movies that we've just watched.
0: See for for me, I'm I'm still in the same place where I think I think it is slightly better than I gave it credit for, and this is before we were doing score the score. But I was down on it in in that review. My my thing is I I feel like there's just not enough variety to it, but it serves its purpose very well. It's just that other than that main theme, there's not a whole lot that uh, I remember that sticks with me uh but i i think maybe you're right a little bit the main theme is better than i gave it credit for but it's still it's still not among my favorite carpenter scores
1: yeah yeah i, I get that i can't i can't hum it right now but it, it gives the perfect feeling um did you find re-watching it that it, it brought out a lot more christine than um maybe you had thought the first time or you hadn't seen Christine. I hadn't
0: either. seen Christine. No, the thing that I kind of grasped onto this time was this felt like proto in the mouth of madness, really like it, mm-hmm. because it had like, I was not, I really didn't catch on to how much of a Lovecraftian tone he had given the whole thing with, you know, taking because because he, he's basically taking the, the framework of Christianity and basically all religion throughout documented history and, and then saying, well, that's that's a framework, but it's actually not um, – it actually represents this other thing that's much bigger and much faster. And
1: and, and I, I like that you see it as a, a proto version of that. I saw it as a revisiting of themes from um, Assault on Precinct 13 meets The Fog. Like, it was very much like those movies to me. They're trapped in there. They can't get out. But also, it, it, it had some of the same stuff from The Fog, the way it sort of, like – started outside of the building, went in. Mm -hmm. That's just, I I felt like it was an an iteration on those things and sort of a return to form of those earlier films that we hadn't seen in a little bit from Carpenter.
0: Well, and I think a big part of that is the fact that he's dealing with a very small, you know, kind of indie budget. Um, so he goes back to the siege picture, the thing that he knows he can make. Mm -hmm. And so, and he kind of mixes all of these things together. And I, you know, my my thing with prince of darkness is i love the concept i love uh the world that he's built the the ideas that he's playing with i do think the execution is a little flimsy here and there like the script could have uh used a little work and then also casting wise there are some and it's not everyone like um victor wong is great in this um but i still have a problem with mustache brian marsh is that his name
1: (laughs) yeah i i i still think he looks a little bit like jason sudeikis (laughs) It, it hit me again this time when when sudeikis has the mustache to me they look alike
0: i still don't see it but yeah there there are there are a handful of characters in in it that that are just and honestly i think there might be just too many characters in general. Mm-hmm. Which I guess, I mean, I, I think his thinking there was perhaps like that way we can have more people killed and picked off.
1: That's exactly what I was going to say. If you don't have characters, you can't kill them.
0: Yeah, but ultimately, like, because you don't get any real character development, because it is such a huge ensemble, it's you don't really care when they start going missing. Most of them. Yep. Very last thing uh that I'll I'll note here, this is actually marks something that I wouldn't have really paid attention to before we started doing this, uh perhaps. This marks the first time of Gary B. Gibb uh filling in as director John Carpenter's DP. This is also the first film without Dean Cundy as director of photography since Halloween, I think. Oh no, Starman was not Dean Cundy, but Other than Starman, Dean Cundey was his dude for that that big run. Um, This is, and and Gary B. Gibb also, he shot They Live. Um, He shot uh, In the Mouth of Madness as well. I got to say, this is probably his best. Hmm. And maybe it's because he's kind of doing a Cundey thing here. Like there's a lot of low light and a lot of um, very shallow depth of field and it looks nice i think this movie i think this movie does look better than the movie we're going to discuss in full today
1: yeah it it does but but we can talk more about that in our review
0: well then why don't we
1: get to that review sounds like a plan
0: the feeling is definitely there it's a new morning in america fresh vital the old cynicism is gone we have faith in our leaders we're optimistic as to what becomes of it all. It really boils down to our ability to accept. We don't need pessimism. There are no limits. <laughs> it must figures it would be something like this. Our nation.
1: our ideal oh. of vision. Excuse we don't want me. To just survive. We
0: you know, want to you sustain. look like your head fell on the cheese dip back in 1957. You, you're okay. This one, real f***ing ugly. Oh. You see, I take these glasses off. She looks like a regular person, doesn't she, huh? Put them back on, formaldehyde face. That's what That's we got. enough out of you. You get out or i call the cops. Call the cops? You know what you need? You need a Brazilian plastic sword. I've
1: got one that can
0: see. So, a brief primer on They Live. Rowdy Roddy Piper stars as John Nada. He's a down-on-his-luck construction worker who rides into town looking for work. And Frank, played by Keith David, uh, helps him find a job and a place to live among a group of other working homeless much like himself. And then uh, Nada stumbles onto a box of sunglasses that sort of alter his perspective on the world entirely. He dives headfirst into the type of full tilt dystopian sci fi story that really only John Carpenter could bring to the screen, and it's uh, it's a whole lot of fun. Jake, uh, this this movie is it's kind of silly, it's kind of campy, um, it's honestly one of the most overt political statements John Carpenter ever has. And it's him playing a little more in sci-fi, although he's using his sort of horror credentials um, to good effect as well. So They Live is a movie that I've held near near to my heart for for a long time. This is really the first movie that I associated with John Carpenter. This is your first time seeing it. I'm curious... What did you think?
1: I thought it was a little campier than I expected, but it was it was so much fun. It made up for it. And I'm not even complaining about the camp because it was amazing. And uh I could I could watch Rowdy Roddy Piper's acting, if we want to call it that, all day. It was I, I can watch I can watch a giant muscle man go shoot aliens. That's I I guess they're aliens. Did they say they were from space? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So my history with this is there was a guy when I was in high school, um, that I worked with who was, I don't know, several years older than me. And, um, he would, was constantly kind of loaning me movies cause he, he knew that I was, mm-hmm. was into film. And so he, I mean, some of the first Hitchcock that I ever saw or some of the first, uh, you know, all, all these kind of classic films that, that, um, were just out of my reach he would loan to me and one time he loaned me this and duel and strangers on a train and they were all fantastic but this was the one that really like it was i think because it stood out from <laughs> from the others so that initially i was like why does he why did he loan this to me this this Mm -hmm. seems this is like kind of you know it is campy it's campy Mm -hmm. it's silly uh but it's also made with a lot of heart and it's made like i while watching it this time i i thought a a few times and i wrote down in my notes i think this is the type of movie that john s rad (laughs) thought he was making when he made dangerous men
1: yeah I can, I can see that
0: because it's, you know, it's not taking itself too seriously, even as it is like addressing a a serious topic. Um, and it's, uh, the, the thing, you know, it's, it's John Carpenter, once again, working at, uh, the top of his game in knowing that what, you know, he needs to do with this is not step away from the camp but embrace it and go really all into the science fiction elements of it and really like these it's it's sort of blending um it's blending the horror that he knows with like 50 sci-fi
1: yeah and 50 sci-fi is the right way to describe it but with a political message that you wouldn't have seen there yeah um it it, it is sort of a um like a, a twilight zone episode plus plus sure like, sure um or or these days we would call it a black mirror episode
0: <laughs> well i mean it's yeah it's it's certainly it's campier than a black mirror episode would mm-hmm. be um but yeah it, it has it exists in a world like that mm-hmm. um and i don't know like that i think i think part of the reason why it's enduring though is because it um it play it it's it's it exists in a playful world so if it took itself super seriously i think it would feel more antiquated looking back now
1: but i think it also does a really good job of conveying its point of like hey why do i go to work every day what am i trying to do like it 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 does bring those points up and uh and and in a really good way with with being a a message that is political but not just too like divisively political
0: well and in some ways it is a it is the most John Carpenter film in in tone with that because I mean throughout his career he is he questions authority. Whether mm-hmm. whether you're looking at Assault on Precinct Thirteen or you're looking at you know Escape from New York or you know it's it's all over his films. But this is the one that takes it head on the most and really um really says like what if What if it's not just that, like, I should question authority, but what if authority is actually, you know, entities from another world that are controlling us with, you know, controlling our minds with consumerism, with all of this stuff? And obviously, he made this as a reaction to uh, the Reagan era of the of the 80s. Uh, But he's even said you know, since then, that he believes the 80s never ended. He believes we're still living in the world that he is sort of pushing back against in They Live.
1: Also, I sort of wish the 80s never ended. I want more 80s John Carpenter. Like, it, it, it is kind of sad that this is the last film of the 80s for him. Yeah. Because this truly is a great run when you look back on everything he did in the
0: 80s. Yeah, and the thing that's interesting to me is this is existing in the same place as Prince of Darkness as far as budget. I mean, he's still working with only $3 million. So this is a a meager budget film. I think he does far and away so much more with that budget here than he did with Prince of
1: Darkness. You can kind of tell watching it that the movie's, the movie's really good, but it... It's something I, I I think is, it's great and it's like an obtainable greatness. Like you can, it's not a movie that, you know, if you go and watch The Avengers, it's like you could never sit down and make The Avengers. Like mm-hmm. that's not a thing you could do. It It's not an inspiring movie to me as a as a potential filmmaker or something like that. Because I, I could never sit down and make a, hundred, you know, $400 billion movie or whatever it costs. But like this movie is like, this was some really good ideas and, and he took... Sunglasses and black and white and yeah, uh, alien yeah. mask and made a world out of it, a compelling world out of it, and and it's that obtainable greatness that I think can be really inspiring to to other filmmakers or or kids or potential filmmakers or whatever you want to say.
0: Well, sure. And this was, you know, for for certain filmmakers, this was their clerks or their slacker mm-hmm. or you know, this is this exists in that world of like, oh, with a little bit of more than what I've got. I can, I could probably try to make something like that. And it's, it's, it's in the wheelhouse of John Carpenter that um, we've harped on time and time again of his ingenuity, his knowing how to work with the limits of what he has available to him. And even when they're pretty meager here, um, I think he does a great job.
1: Let me ask you this. Is Rowdy Roddy Piper just the, the budget version of Kurt Russell?
0: Um maybe I so you 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 said if you can call it acting. I get a sense that you don't you don't really like uh Roddy Roddy Piper as oh. a performer here is that or is it is it just the style? He has his
1: strengths and and some of the some of his line readings aren't like great. Uh but I I loved watching it. It was a lot of fun. I'm not I'm not Yeah. I'm not even counting that as a mark against the movie really. Um, but it is he is rowdy Rowdy Piper and and his other job being a a, a cool professional wrestler in a kilt also involves some acting um, but it, it's he doesn't display a, a ton of range here or anything
0: I don't I, I don't know if it gets better with Kurt Russell in in this role like I guess it would it would he would have a lot of fun with it. I'm sure the performance would be great. But there's there's a certain magic and charm to Rowdy Rowdy Piper for me that um, I really appreciate that he had the opportunity to to have this role. Um, I think I think he's pretty great in it. And there's actually the the commentary track um, on on the uh, Scream Factory disc is really good. It's it's Rowdy Rowdy Piper and John Carpenter. You know he has his own. Even watching it you know, years removed, um, he has his own reservations about his performance throughout. And there's a few places where he says, Oh man, I'm just, I just did terrible here. And it's, I, I recommend listening to it just because it's a, it's a pretty fun, great, uh, commentary with some inside and with some good banter. Um, but there's a moment there where, uh, Piper is sort of down on himself in his ability as an actor. And because this is the first real film that um, I think he had had, you know, small parts here and there. But this is the first like starring role he had ever had. And he thought, you know, he dropped the ball in some places. And the way Carpenter handles him, even, you know, like 12 years removed from the making of the film is really interesting. Like, I think it gives you a lot of insight into how he works with actors in general. And he's very nurturing and he's very, sensitive and, and aware of uh, Piper's insecurities and sort of says, you know, man, no, like that's don't worry about it. You, it was real. You gave your own performance and I really appreciate that. And I think, I think Carpenter's right too,
1: man. Why do you want to make me feel bad about saying something bad about Rowdy Roddy Piper? <laughs> I always liked him growing up. He was always one of my favorite wrestlers. And now I feel like a bad person because I judged his movie performance. I got to go, I got to go watch the commentary now.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, the other thing that I'll say is this is one that I've seen a few times now. And I think his performance improves with, um, with repeat viewing as well, because it is, it's, you know, it's not as polished, but it is endearing. And I think that's what, uh, what attracts me to him in this, in this film. Like he, he is earnest and that works for, for the character of Nada.
1: I, I agree. But you know who else gave a really good performance? Keith David. Keith, Keith David, David always turns in a solid performance. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: Well, that that was another thing that he, you know, Piper would say, you know, he's a, he he's a theatrically trained actor and he's a dancer and he's, you know, like, how can I go up against Keith David? And, but I think I, I, I buy their friendship. Well, I, I, I love this like sort of 80s bro you know it's i'll put it right up there with like carl weathers and schwarzenegger and predator or um i mean it's it's different but it's great
1: look he's wondering how he could go up against keith david i know how he could in a 10 minute fist fight that's <laughs> that's how he's gonna go up against him man that was a good fight scene
0: so i assume you were aware of the fight before watching
1: Mm-mm, nope really i know that there were sunglasses uh there was obey <laughs> And that he he didn't have any bubblegum. Those are okay. the things I knew.
0: That's amazing. Okay, I'm so happy for you because I went into it with the same... I mean, because it was literally like a movie I hadn't heard of until this guy hands it to me and says, you should watch this. And so I didn't know it was coming. And it was just like one of those like, this is still going on. This is still happening. This is amazing. Like, I only wish I could have experienced it in a theater with a crowd who didn't know it was coming either because like... I can only imagine a crowd's reaction because there's not even there's not even score. It's just you hear them beating the crap out of each other for 10 minutes. And it's great.
1: I I think it also works for the film because it's symbolic about like people on Earth are fighting and there's a much bigger big bed there.
0: Well, it's also an interesting it's an interesting dynamic that he brings because it's not just your like standard 80s macho brawl. Because ultimately, they don't really want to be fighting each other, mm-hmm. but they're coming to a disagreement and have no other way that they see that they can, you know, get around it. And so it's because it's a pretty simple, you know, it's it's not a saying put on the glasses mm-hmm. and and it's Frank saying, I don't want to put on the glasses. And so they just they tussle over it. And like friends who, you know, in it, it, heightened masculine, uh, sort of way, like might come to blows. They, they do their thing. And then afterwards they're cool.
1: Yeah, no, it, it felt, it felt like, uh, fighting your friend in high school or something like that, where, where, where you throw some punches to try to get them to do whatever, in this case, put on a pair of sunglasses. And then afterwards it made them closer and it made their friendship even more believable going forward. Yeah, it like it defined it in a really unique, cool way that did not feel fake. It felt very, very earned. Those two working together from there on out.
0: Well, and I think that's one of the other things that makes this stand so far above Prince of Darkness for me is, you know, I've complained time and again about Prince of Darkness and its characters and it's, you know, like there's nothing to latch on to. I think their friendship is a really easy endpoint with this film. And I buy it.
1: Do you buy the relationship with uh, Holly in the movie?
0: Holly, Holly's probably the thorniest sort of aspect of, of the film for me. Um, she doesn't really work. The turns don't really work. I understand why they're there. I understand why they're necessary. I think, I think Carpenter could have, and he, we should say, uh, he wrote this script under the pseudonym of uh Frank Armitage. I I think he could have finessed that a little bit. Um I mean he's kind of going for this femme fatale thing. He's kind of uh you know playing in that realm. And you know I, I think that Meg Foster does a great job with the character. Uh, eh. But she does she does turn on a dime quite a bit. And that's that's a matter of the writing is a little looser than than maybe it needed to be to pull that
1: off. I think I think she didn't do a great job with it. I dunno I don't know if to blame writing or direction or acting or what. She just wasn't very compelling. Maybe somebody else could have taken the same words and, and made me feel like they had any sort of a connection. But like even even when he took her hostage or whatever, she she's such an intimidating presence sort of in that scene. Like I never felt like she was really uh not gonna get over on rowdy rowdy piper
0: that's fair i i'd see that so i mean who would you what about what if kim cattrall from big trouble little china what if she comes back
1: yeah no i'm in 100 percent. that sounds great that sounds much better because i could have bought her as being a little more helpless and her mm-hmm. being a little more helpless would have made the turn later not seem like oh well, yeah she's been driving this thing the whole time Yeah. Like, like I just, I just never bought her vulnerability. She didn't bring that to the role. And I think that would have really helped help that character out.
0: Okay. So you, you were sort of always on edge with like suspecting her the entire time, which you kind of with a femme fatale character, you kind of have to have that uh, ability for the deception.
1: Yeah. If you're going to be a Barbara Stanwyck, you got to start off being like, oh no, my husband, (laughs) you know. You, you got to have that at the beginning.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I could see that. And she is, like I said, she's probably the biggest overall problem. The, the character is probably the biggest over, overall problem I have with the film. Um, I mean, it's, you know, it, it's one of those things where he's still, you can, I feel like you can still see that he's working on, on a shoestring budget um, in in places. But I do think, I mean, I think visual effects wise, he pulls off so much with so little. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff when, when not as putting on the glasses and taking them off, kind of looking mm-hmm. around and seeing all the uh, signage, a lot of that stuff is just matte paintings. So yep. super economical way to, to pull that off. Um, the kind of stunt coordinator guy, um, whose name escapes me right now, but he was, he was even in big trouble. um, he he plays most of the aliens. Like if there's ah. ever just one alien, it's him. Even like the lady with the, or who's talking to a wristwatch in the, uh, in the uh, supermarket. Um, the, so, the
1: the one who was effing ugly.
0: Yeah, formaldehyde <laughs> face. Um, <laughs> put her face in the cheese dip in 1953. <laughs> and there's there are some bizarre one-liners in this movie. They and are great. And I love them. I love them all. And that, and that's, and that's the thing where like, I think if you put Kurt Russell in this role, it's going to be a different performance altogether. Like I think yeah. rowdy rowdy, but you need, you kind of need a professional wrestler to deliver stuff like that. And, you know, he ad libbed the here to kick ass and chew bubble gum and mull out bubblegum. So he brings that to it as well.
1: Oh, awesome.
0: Which is a huge piece.
1: I feel like John Carpenter makes his his money work here by investing in the special effects. And he went essentially, in a way, it feels like dumpster diving for actors, but he he comes out with the best stuff. He knows what he's looking for. And he found great fits for almost everything, with with Holly being the one exception.
0: I, I will say another place where it feels a little cheaper is, and I kind of alluded to this when we were talking about Prince of Darkness, but... I, I I feel like this visually is not quite as compelling a Prince of Darkness as I was saying earlier. Um, it feels a little I I guess just a little stock, a little flat uh, for the most part, but it also feels of a course with the general like 80s action movie, which is generally not the they're generally not the prettiest films.
1: yeah it it, it definitely feels like the uniqueness of the vision all came from the sunglasses and the transition between color yeah. and black and white yeah, and absolutely in the world build building when the sunglasses were on, which was fantastic. Yeah. Um, how timeless is, is the black text on the white uh, signs and everything?
0: Yeah. It's, it's so good, but it's also, that's all Carpenter that, mm-hmm. and that, that's what I'm saying is like this, you know, I, I really wish like we could see the alternative universe version where Dean Cundy shoots this, yeah. because I think that would take it to another level as far yeah. as uh, as far as being visually satisfying um, as well like all the stuff that works it works because carpenter has created this great convention of going between color and black and white and and using you know using tricks like one of the oldest tricks in in the book of filmmaking matte paintings um, and and just knowing how to uh, how to sell it.
1: I think another thing that makes it feel less like a Carpenter film uh, was just that a lot of it was set outside bright during the day in the city. Like, Carpenter's a lot of interiors, a lot of evenings, a lot of nights.
0: Especially, like, the construction stuff mm-hmm. and the, it's, it all just feels like sort of high noon sun and, like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's all right. The, I mean, some of the, like, the chase with the helicopters and, like, you know, the, pl- police raid and stuff stuff looks a little better
1: yeah i think i think it looks best when the 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 like swat team raid comes in through the side of the building and yeah they yeah. run through the alleys and all that that's all that all looks pretty good but but i mean a lot of that has to do with carpenter's vision coming out and less the cinematography
0: so what do you think carpenter was going through at the time as far as like he he clearly is, is playing with this idea of like television and of um, being able to broadcast across airwaves and like, I mean, because Prince of Darkness, we've got the whole, the message coming from the, mm-hmm. um, the Brotherhood of Sleep. Here we've got uh, the Drifter played by George Buckflower uh, who is transmitting um, this, this message across the television, basically saying, wake up, wake up. We sleep. They live. They're controlling us They're, You know, it's mind control. Um, I don't know. I just, I find it fascinating that you don't see a whole lot with Carpenter where he kind of repeats a motif like this. And I, I find it fascinating that um, on these two smaller budget films, um, it is something that he, there's, there's continuity there with him exploring it.
1: I don't know if maybe he felt like that was in you know working with video um felt modern and like a lot of bang for his buck like hmm. uh c g would uh, you know eight years later yeah um I don't know if it was that but when you when you started asking that question, what was Carpenter going through? I thought you meant like what was he going through to make this anti money movie <laughs> like what emotionally <laughs> when, <laughs> and I was gonna say, i don't know maybe maybe the the couple flops he had made him a uh, a uh, question why he was working so hard to to make box office instead of making what he wanted to make.
0: I mean, and, and that's that's I mean, probably a, a pretty good honest answer as well. As far as like, I mean, because by the end of the 80s, he you know, he was basically from Halloween up until Big Trouble. He was just on up and up and up and up and up and up slope.
1: He was I mean, working just, in Denver until things dried up.
0: Yeah. And I mean, but at the same time, it's, it's interesting because he, when you think of his entire kind of body of work, so many of his films, so many of his best films, uh, The Thing, uh, Big Trouble in Little China. I mean, so many of, of those films were sort of flops and sort of, you know, only are now revered by fans.
1: It, it, it's that classic crime of like, you didn't make exactly what people wanted to see. And so it didn't do that well. But the fact mm-hmm. that it wasn't what everybody else was making is what makes it stand out and interesting yeah. to go back and watch. So he's just a victim of his own vision, which is yeah. just the saddest thing.
0: With, with the exception of this movie, I mean, that's the thing that's, in, that's fascinating is, I mean, granted, it was only a $3 million budget, but this movie made, made its money back, you know, a few times over.
1: And that's just from Rowdy Rowdy Piper fans. It was,
0: I think, I think they said in the commentary that it was uh, the number one at the box office opening weekend. So that's, that's pretty impressive for, for a movie this modest. Um, And, you know, the Prince of Darkness did fairly well as well. But um, even, even though we're kind of at the close of, we're not kind of, we are at the close of Carpenter's 80s movies. I do think this is a sweet note for him to end on.
1: Oh yeah, and it's a and it's a fun one too. Like I, I, I like that. Sort of in in the same vein of uh, Big Trouble, everybody here's having fun. This yeah. is a fun movie. They they had to have had a blast making this.
0: Oh, I'm sure.
1: And no more to me is that evident than than he was having fun even just writing it. Um, but just look at the ending. Like that is this is one of my favorite endings I've I've ever seen in any movie. <laughs> Um, I, I guess we're, we're probably outside of the spoilers window for that. But I, I, I just loved the little bit where they're, they're talking about, uh, have filmmakers like George Romero and John Carpenter gone too far? All the sex and violence on the screen has gone too far for me. I'm fed up with it. Filmmakers like George Romero and John Carpenter have to show some restraint. They're simply... You're with lightning when you hit the road.
0: Feeling that V6 power as you take control. Nothing suck you down. You're moving on.
1: Hey, what's wrong, baby? I love that cut to topless woman in a in making love to an alien <sighs> who she can finally see his face. Close movie. Oh yeah, ten seconds before that, Rowdy Rowdy Piper flips off the camera and kills the 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 femme fatale. Like it's just it's just everything you would want to have happen at the end of a movie. And you go, I don't think you could end a movie calling yourself out and then showing a topless woman. And then just, it's over.
0: The irony is it's one of the sweeter endings to a John Carpenter movie, <laughs> <laughs> particularly of of this time frame. Like, it's it doesn't end in total disaster. It ends in a little bit of hope. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm really glad you bring up the, the like, Siskel and Ebert sort of spoof (laughs) thing Um, because uh, like I said, like I, this was really my first introduction to John Carpenter and that was like, I had, I had fun throughout the whole thing, but then that moment was the moment that like sealed the deal of like, I love this director. What else has he made?
1: Oh Um, yeah.
0: Because of like, he's, he's willing to get self-referential because he's by this point he's earned it. And he's calling out, you know, he's calling out Siskel and Ebert, which I mean, Ebert was historically pretty down on his stuff other than like he did. Both of them loved Halloween. Ebert was a big fan of uh, Ghosts of Mars. And I'm trying to think there was at least one other sort of wishy-washy where he was like, yeah, it was pretty good. It was pretty fun. Um, but he was down on a lot of his stuff on a lot of Carpenter stuff. Um, so I, I love the playfulness here. I love that. He's just, I mean, that feels that ending feels. So if you've listened to any interviews with Carpenter, it just feels so his personality. It's beautiful.
1: Well, well, and and I have, I have, I have like a a listener challenge for this. Has any other movie ended during the sex scene? That's question (laughs) one. And is this the closest to the end of the movie that bare breasts have ever been shown because it is the second to last shot. It's the only thing in the shot. I mean, the, the just a topless woman in the second to last. Has it ever been in the last shot of a movie? The last frame of a movie? I, I mean, I'm
0: sure the answer is yes. Okay, but not, not in not but, in but, a but, porno, Chris. But not in, but not in such a like postmodern way. <laughs> like that's the thing. That's the thing that makes it so good is the way he's just saying like you know he's this is. It's like his funny games, almost, the ending yeah, of this movie. It,
1: it almost feels like by the end he's putting a hat on a hat, in a way. It's just <laughs> it's great, and he's just throwing great on top of great on the way out. Like, you came here, you paid money for it. Here, here's the rest of the $5 you paid to get into this movie. Just <laughs> to like, go I'm back, making it worthwhile.
0: To go back to Kurt Russell's, you get your $5 worth from exactly. Good Trouble.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, late, late 80s John Carpenter, just making sure you get $5 worth. In Prince of Darkness, it's that mirror scene, the hand coming out of the mirror. And then in this one, it's just here's some self referential breasts.
0: All right, Jake, well, you know what that sound means. It's time to score the score. And remind me, Jake, how do we score the score?
1: We score the score out of a score, which as everyone who's ever read the Gettysburg Address knows is 20.
0: I don't know if that's how that works.
1: Everyone who ever has written the Gettysburg Address knows (laughs) it's 20.
0: So what did you think about this one?
1: You know, I I liked it. And I thought it was I thought it was good, and I, I definitely enjoyed it and thought it set the tune. I can't really remember how it goes.
0: I, I think this one, it kind of falls in the same place as Prince of Darkness as far as it's a lot of background that's you know just it's it's more moving it along. I think this is just overall a better score. Prince of Darkness
1: better as in like more memorable or like plays to the action a little better and
0: well I I don't know if necessarily plays to the action better as far like because I don't think Prince of Darkness is bad at that it's just more memorable okay um and and I think more like recognizable as well I mean it's got that bluesy harmonica you know think about think about that opening score uh, it's got the bluesy harmonica. It's got that like slow Western bassline stroll, um, which really sets you up for sort of, that is the theme song to John Nada. Um, it's, it's great. And then you have sort of these reprises of, of that baseline or a little bit of the harmonica throughout the, uh, throughout the film. This is not a, this is not a soundtrack that I would purchase. However, it is one that I would listen to.
1: Yeah, I, f- I forgot about that good harmonica coming in. That, uh, yeah, it definitely feels unique amongst his scores uh, with that, because I don't know that he really used a harmonica in, in many of the other ones. And it definitely feels tied into Rowdy Rowdy Piper's character. I did like that a lot. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, and and so that's the, I'm I'm in a place where I can't put this, like, upper echelon Carpenter scores. Uh, but it's extremely effective. It's perfect for the film. And so, I, I mean, I think I got to come in at like a 15.
1: Oh yeah. I, I was going to go, I was going to go a 16. I I, <laughs> I I felt it was a little better than a, like if typically you were talking about like an eight, uh, it, it's better than a, a seven and a half feels so so off. I, I can't give it a 15.
0: You, you always surprise me here. You always like I either think you're going higher or lower than you actually do. Um, <laughs> I I'm, no, I'm, I'm sticking with 15. I'm not going to, I'm not going to have to justify my, uh, my choice for you. It's a, it's a 15. I'm happy with it as a 15. I think it's a, it's a great memorable theme and there's, there's some great underscore throughout as well. Um, but it, you know, it's not, it's not the best of the best, it's not yeah, Halloween,
1: but, but you talk you talked me up some saying it was the 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 Nada theme.
0: Oh yeah, no the yeah. Nada theme is great. It's yeah. really good.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I'm with you.
0: Okay, well then that means it's time for Clash of the Carpenter, Jake, and boy, who are you ready?
1: Yeah, it's it's a long line now.
0: Okay, so we began with Kurt Russell's R.J. McCready, who went on to defeat Victor Wong's Professor Barack in Prince of Darkness.
1: And then McCready beat the creepy innkeeper, Miss Pickman, from In the Mouth of Madness, aka Happy Gilmore's grandma.
0: And then he went on to defeat bomb number 20 in Dark Star.
1: But then McCready's reign ended, and we have a lot of turnover after this. McCready was defeated by the Shape from Halloween,
0: who was then in turn defeated by Christine from Christine,
1: who then was almost certainly defeated by the whole crew at Precinct 13 from Assault on Precinct 13.
0: <laughs> I love that you're still holding that hope for for Christine.
1: Uh, I, th- I swear I saw it move. I swear I saw the block of metal move.
0: <laughs> then the entire crew from Assault on Precinct 13 was defeated by Blake and his band of sword wielding sailor lepers in the fog.
1: But Kurt Russell returned to the brawl as Snake Plissken in Escape from New York and claimed the throne back from those pirate lepers.
0: Then he went on to defeat Jeff Bridges as Starman. In Starman.
1: But was soon defeated by Jack Burton in a three-way Russell on Russell on Russell tussle with Burton and a mysterious figure who looked an awful lot like R.J. McCready.
0: If you guys somehow missed that, you should definitely go back and listen to the Big Trouble Little China episode uh, because it was it was a lot of fun and it was tough. And uh, somehow, somehow, lucky Jack Burton got out of it.
1: Of course, of course he did.
0: So now we are at Jack Burton versus nada
1: i don't i don't know i don't know this first off this is a good fight
0: this is this is a great fight this is going to be a long fight
1: oh oh yeah nada doesn't stop uh and and burton is just just a cat who always lands on his feet
0: yeah here's here's the thing i don't think it's going to be the same fight as he had with frank because jack burton is probably just going to put the sunglasses on immediately
1: (laughs) put these sunglasses on okay yeah, okay. But do do you think that with with Jack Burton being all about, you know, making some money and all that, that maybe he's he he's he's more on the alien side of things?
0: No. No, no, no. No, no, no. no, no. He's Jack, Jack Burton still, you know, he he may live a little whimsically with his own narrative, uh, but he still has a a pure understanding of right and wrong.
1: True. Okay. I I'm I'm with you there.
0: I mean, I I think, it, I think it would be an excellent fight. I would pay for the pay-per-view on this one. But, but Burden is going to come out on top. That's my vote.
1: Let, let, me, let, me, let me point some stuff out. So Nada found out that, that there were aliens just by putting on the glasses. So now he saw aliens on some people. It mm-hmm. took him like two minutes to start killing those aliens. Like he had no qualms about killing aliens. Just right off the bat, Jack yeah. Burton, like the first dude he kills, he he's a little like, uh, w- w- I just killed a guy is kind of what it looks like. So one of them was a little more trained, a little more ready, ready to go. We're not we're
0: not talking about Jack Burton taking on the aliens. We're talking about man on man, mono mano I, Burton I know, versus and, Nada. And I'm
1: just saying Nada is a warrior, and Jack Burton might not want to just you know beat nada to a pulp or anything like that i i'm not saying he's gonna
0: beat him to the pulp i'm just saying he's gonna win he's gonna get <laughs> out of here
1: yeah he, he he might he might he might throw nada to the aliens he might just trip him up i mean i mean something's gonna to happen to help him help him get out of there
0: i i'm just saying like it's it's gonna be it's gonna be a great fight it's gonna be a big fight um we're gonna think burden is down and out maybe more than once but
1: he may be down and out and come back
0: but my vote is yeah He's ultimately at the end of the day, Burden's the one crawling out and getting away.
1: Yeah, and, and if we need even more evidence, he made it out of his own movie.
0: <laughs> he did as far as we know. But, <laughs> but more more importantly, he, he's already defeated Snake Plissken and RJ McCready, or a figure that looks a lot like RJ
1: McCready. And and Lopan. Let's not leave out Lopan.
0: And David Lopan. That's that's absolutely correct. So yeah. yeah There's a piece of cake.
1: Yeah. I mean I mean you're probably right. Nada couldn't even take on a infested Earth full of aliens. So
0: hey, he he went down swinging, though.
1: Oh yeah, no he. <laughs> and I, I do love that he has basically the greatest death.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's a. I haven't I haven't checked, but I I don't need to check. I'm just going to make it. That's that's a gif that needs to be a gif if it's not
1: already. So so are we calling this one for Jack Burton?
0: Yeah, we're calling it for Jack Burton. I think Nada puts up a valiant fight, but ultimately. Burton wins it. Alright, well Burton it is. Alright. Moving on. Our last category, the Carpenter Cannon. So Jake, don't stop me. Let me just get through all of them, and then you can tell me. Is this movie a carpenter classic? Yes. A deep dive or just for Johnny's mommy?
1: I mean, how can this not be a carpenter classic? It it, it almost completely defines the director and his vision and skill and and uh, a message he wants to get across his voice is completely here yeah the acting's not perfect or anything but it is it is a cult classic and and I don't I don't know any way that it can't be a carpenter classic
0: you're you're absolutely right and not just not just his skill but also his versatility mm-hmm. in you know his ability to to like I, I said earlier lean into the camp his ability to you know also do a little more sci-fi than we've seen from him or a little different sci-fi. This is definitely different sci-fi than we got from like Starman. Um, it's, it's more, you know, paying homage to perhaps what he grew up with loving. Um, I think, yeah, I think it defines, um, Carpenter in a lot of ways. It has so much of him running throughout from, from themes to execution, absolute Carpenter classic. You're not getting debate from me on this one.
1: Yeah, I I think if you're going to rank anything in a top tier with a director, they just have to um, fully realize their vision in a successful way. And and unquestionably, this did it. And if you go and watch every movie that a director was able to fully realize their vision and and it works, that should give you... Their best movies, and also a showcase of their range, and and this one manages to to check both those boxes, every one of those boxes. It's a Carpenter classic.
0: Yeah, well, and and I will, I'll just close out with this. Um, this is a movie where John Carpenter, like he leaves a calling card at the end with that uh, Siskel and Ebert bit, which leads me to saying, like, oh, who is this John Carpenter guy? Maybe I need to think of him, like I think of you know Steven Spielberg or. Whoever I'm you know, putting up as an auteur is like a s- junior, senior in high school. And, and it led me to seeking out more John Carpenter films. So by that, it has to be a Carpenter classic for me, always, because it led me into the world of John Carpenter.
1: So there you have it, folks, an undeniable Carpenter classic. So, Chris, when the Midnight Warriors sit down to watch this movie for the first time or, or maybe rewatch this classic – What do you suggest they pop open the drink during the film?
0: So I knew I wanted to go with something that John Nada would actually
1: drink. So you picked whiskey?
0: No. Um, He's he's a working man. And, you know, a lot of times I'm picking these, like, flowery craft beers uh, as pairings, which go very well. But I, I felt like that was going to be wrong for They Live. So instead, I'm going to pair this movie with a Miller High Life, which is a.k.a. the Champagne of Beer by Miller Brewing Company in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. This is coming in at a 4.6 ABV and a whopping, folks, 7 IBU. So this is a beer that is sort of a, it's a ubiquitous uh, pilsner, uh, macro brew pilsner. There's nothing fancy about it. Actually, let me read you a little bit of a uh, description that I found that, uh, Well, I I, I think Miller's a little high on themselves with this, but I'll let you be the judge. Uh, They say in 1903, Frederick Miller created Miller High Life because he believed that the good life, the high life, should be accessible to everyone, not just the upper crust. To this day, Miller High Life continues to be faithfully brewed as a golden pilsner, utilizing light, stable Galena hops from the Pacific Northwest, and a select combination of malted barley.
1: So they got the hipster description f- for a Miller High Life.
0: Yeah, I mean, here's the thing: it's they they are not embracing the camp of this beer, and it's a you know, it's it's one of those that. You're gonna find It's probably gonna be about the cheapest thing on tap, um, but it, that's a plus. Like this is, I would honestly rather a Miller High Life than like a PBR. If I'm if I'm being totally honest, yeah. um, it's a it's a perfectly drinkable little pilsner. It is by no means the most flavorful beer uh, you're gonna find, but uh, you know if you're at like a little pizza place that only has like three things on tap and none of them are are particularly exceptional, this is probably gonna be the best thing you got. Um, so there's nothing wrong with it. I would definitely kick back a whole six pack of these with nada.
1: You're going to drink six of these during the movie? I mean, you could.
0: They're only 4.6 ABV <laughs> and we would be sharing it. So it'd be three and three, I imagine, or maybe he might even take four and I'd take two. I don't know. Oh, okay, yeah. But all I'm saying is if I have to choose one generic macro American Pilsner, this is the one I usually go for. And so I think you should drink it out of a red solo cup or a frosty mug or with a pickle. Next time you sit down to watch they live.
1: Wait, a pickle?
0: (laughs) Oh, I knew you were going to ask this. I don't have time to get into it. I will try to link to the article in the show notes. Um, I haven't actually tried this, but I've read a pretty compelling uh, argument for putting a a pickle in a uh, less than stellar beer. To add a little bit of uh, interesting briny flavor to it, it's a thing that people are doing, at least like the hipsters in Bushwick or something. I don't know.
1: No, it's people being trolled from the Internet. Don't fall for this, Chris. Don't put a pickle in your beer. If, if you're
0: the type of person who likes to put a, pic- a a pickle in a cheap beer, feel free to do it with this while you're watching They Live. Jake, tell tell the folks where they can see They Live.
1: They live it Don't put a pickle in your beer. They live is currently streaming on STARS, or if you're still a fan of physical media, you could pick up Scream Factory's limited edition Steelbook Blu ray. And if you have something to say about the film or about pickles and beer, hit up our assistant, Henry Swanson, at porkchopexpress at carpentercast.com, and he'll relay the message to us.
0: Or if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484 424 6362. That's 484 4Cinema.
1: Hang in there, kid. We'll be right back with some really rad recommendations you won't want to miss. And I will learn in your
0: McCartney Cause I could never have imagined All the ways you make my heart beat They say love's all you need Well, please, please let it be
1: Yeah, you can be Beyonce I can be Daisy Talent like Kanye, just not as crazy If it were possible, I'd have your...
0: Well, Jake, it is time for Really Rad Recommendations once again, and this time I legitimately have no idea what you're going to recommend because you've left it out of the script because you refused to tell me. So now, please tell me, what are you recommending this time?
1: Oh, look, I I may have recommended this before. I can't remember. Sometimes I lose track. Um, I I like usually tying in a link to another movie, Um, you know, try to follow some kind of link. Keith David is one of my favorite actors. And he plays one of his most iconic roles in a Criterion Collection film that I don't know if you've seen, Chris. But it's very good. Oh no,
0: you can't recommend Armageddon. Are you recommending Armageddon?
1: It's it's also a sci-fi film. And it is a a four-time Academy Award nominated picture and a one-time winner of a Razzie Award and also six Razzie nominations. It is 1998's Armageddon. When's the last time you watched Armageddon, Chris? Um, in full? Yes. You know,
0: it hasn't been 20 years, Jake, but it's been close to 20 years.
1: Well, it's streaming on Netflix, Chris. Why don't you watch Armageddon?
0: You mean the J.J. Abrams pinned Armageddon? Did he really write that? Pretty sure he did.
1: Because one of the best parts about it is the screenplay. Just the, the way all the characters are introduced, the way all of the characters are used, the the great working man saves the world plot of it, all the little unique, um, quirky characters who are shown essentially by Typage. They're just they're just cast for what they look like. And and the little bit of a of, of acting they do in there is is, is great. It's got Steve Buscemi and what for a lot of people is one of his more iconic roles. Owen Wilson does a good job being there for half the movie. Bruce Willis does good Let's let's just all go and watch that as a group. We should all go and watch it. That's that's how I feel. I know you are not that high on this movie, and I know if you had come to me in sixth grade and asked me about it, I wouldn't have been that high on this movie. But it has grown on me on every rewatch, which I have rewatched it way too many times and we will probably finish recording and go and do it again tonight, as you should do, because my really rad recommendation is Armageddon.
0: Jake, I just looked it up and it's been nearly three and a half years since you recommended it. It was your first time on the show it was our second episode when we talked about Harmontown. So I will allow this and not force you to choose something else to recommend.
1: I ask you to re-examine your the the, the general Internet dislike of early Michael Bay and, and see his, his. That's not in, even it. Hmm? That's not even it. What is That's it? That's not it.
0: That the the general internet dislike of Michael Bay has nothing to do do with my dislike of this film. What what do you clunky. not like
1: about this film?
0: It's clunky. No. Uh, we can maybe you know we do war crimes. Maybe we need to we need to do something sometime where we reassess a film that one of us thinks the other one's wrong about.
1: The, the episode I would have been most interested in would be a a civil war between Armageddon and Deep Impact recorded by me when I was ten. That's. That would have been the best episode.
0: Okay, moving on. Just just segue me out of this,
1: Jake. Uh, go watch Armageddon again. Chris, what'd you recommend? That wasn't Armageddon.
0: Uh, I'm going to recommend something that is currently streaming on Hulu. It is a 2018 documentary called Neat, The Story of Bourbon. And it is exactly what it sounds like. It's a uh, documentary about sort of the history of bourbon. It's uh, kind of light and playful, uh, also informative um, Steve Zahn appears throughout it and does Steve zahn things and he's quite enjoyable. Um, and, uh, I, it, it, just popped up last week or so, um, on, on Hulu and it's one I'd been dying to see. And, uh, it's a, you know, it's not like it's gonna change your world or anything, but if you, if you like America's, uh, brown booze, you should check this out. It's, uh, it's a little informative, it's a little fun, and uh, I mean, it's only like, I want to say it's like 75 minutes, so it's not a terrible time investment either. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it. Do, that is n- neat, the story of bourbon.
1: Do they save the world from an asteroid in that one?
0: They don't, no. They you, don't, they you, just,
1: you know, those those are oil workers, and I consider oil to be America's brown booze, if you ask me. Nope. <laughs> nope? Not biting on this one? Nope. <laughs> Just an Armageddon hater. I can't wait for that episode. That's going to be my favorite episode. <laughs> and that's a wrap for another episode of The Carpenter Shop. We'll be back next month with a review of John Carpenter's visual effects-heavy sci-fi comedy farce starring Chevy Chase, Daryl Hannah, and Sam Neill, Memoirs of an Invisible Man.
0: And don't forget, you can catch us in another Fortnite on War Starts at Midnight. Where we are planning to have a war crimes review of a little film we discussed a couple months ago with our guest Max Crawford. We're going to we're going to see if we can discuss Roadhouse, a film which I have never seen. I know you have Jake and we all know that Max absolutely loves it. It should be a whole lot of fun.
1: I assume he has the movie playing while listening to this episode.
0: He probably does right now. <laughs> Max, please email us at hellowarstartsmidnight.com and let us know if that is the, the case. Um, also, be on the lookout for a special review of Solo, a Star Wars story dropping, well, we're not exactly sure when. It could have come out just before this episode in the War Starts Midnight feed. Perhaps it's coming out, you know, tomorrow or the day after. I don't know. It's coming out soon. If it's not already out, look for it. Should be a lot of fun. Uh, special guest Jason Yong is going to join us again to reconvene the Jedi Council.
1: Is that episode more of a rogue one? Ugh. <laughs> All right. You can find show notes, archives, and a complete list of where to watch each film in the series at CarpenterCast.com. And you can check out our Mothership podcast at WarStartsAtMidnight.com. You can say hello to us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WSAMPod.
0: If you enjoy the show, tell your friends, tell your casual acquaintances, tell that cute person in the gym who's always listening to podcasts, or rate and subscribe to The Carpenter Shop on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to fine audio programming. It'll help us grow the cult of Carpenter, and it'll make you feel awesome.
1: On the other hand, if you're the trolling type who simply hate listening through these credits, go ahead and send our assistant, Henry Swanson, a great big heaping pile of anonymous internet vitriol at PorkchopExpress at CarpenterCast.com. Or if you're a narcissist who simply loves the sound of your own voice, leave us a voicemail and we just might play it on a future episode. Ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362.
0: The Carpenter Shop theme song was produced by Philip K. Dickey and Dragon in 3. Find them at dragonin3.com and look out for their brand new album coming out sometime soon. And shout out to Ben Rector for the featured music on this week's show. Find more at binrectormusic.com. Thanks for listening, folks.
1: You, You're okay. This one real f-ing ugly.
0: Uh, Barry B. Gibb, cinematographer, once again on this.
1: What BG is he again? What 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 Gibb brother is he?
0: He's the the one who couldn't sing.
1: Oh, okay. So Fanny was not tender with his love. I don't even know the Bee Gees. Fanny be tender with my love. It's just, okay.